thinking it, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It book club, and we are playing Final Fantasy VI. That's right. It's a book club about a game. Up is down. Dogs and cats are playing together. It's it's madness. I am Ben Adams, and with me is a whole panel of overthinkers to talk about uh, Final Fantasy VI, as it's called in some circles, Final Fantasy III and others. Uh, but here I'm, I've got a whole panel of overthinkers. Uh, we've got uh, Shana Malosky. Hey, Shana. Hey, um, I was wondering when you said up is down, did you also mean that uh, left was right and A was B and B X, was A? And, and X was Y, of course. Yes. Yes. Um, good. I'm here. Hello, world. And Shana did, again, the, the second two book clubs in a row, did the hard work of dividing up the game into chunks. So so for that, thank you, Shana. Uh, Very ne- welcome. Next, we have uh, John Parrish. Hey, John. What up? What up? What up happy to be here happy to be playing a video game once again yeah we are we're excited to have you and uh last uh not alphabetically but uh as a as a guest you have you have pride of place uh we have justin bortnick justin is from the red pages podcast and is a a veteran talking about video games who who offered to uh to come over and help us out so hey justin welcome to the podcast hey how are you guys doing we we're doing well. We're excited to to be started. It, the uh, if you're not familiar, the overthinking it podcast typically goes in alphabetical order. So in the future, I will I will be sure to afford you pride of place. But uh, I figured as as the guest, you you should be the the surprise at the end here. So so welcome. All right. Surprise. So for for those listening, this is our our introduction podcast. We're not we're not actually going to get into. The plot of the game just yet. This is our, our kind of our syllabus for the rest of our six week discussion of the game, our, our prolegomenon, if you will. So we're, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to kind of clear some of the brush about the kind of the logistics of how we're playing the game and all the different ways of playing the game and how that's going to affect our discussion. Uh, we're going to talk about this project as a whole, why, why we're doing it and what we hope to get out of it. And then we'll, we'll preview some of the themes that, that we expect to see in the game. So first let's, let's clear the brush. Well, let me ask you guys this just as our, as our kind of question to start off. How are you playing the game? We'll, we'll start with, uh, with Shana. How are, how are you playing the game for the, for the book club here? I am playing the original version, uh, for the SNES. Um, and I've played through most of it because as you said before, I was the one who divided it into chunks. I think I've put about 30 hours into it, uh, but I still haven't finished it because I, yeah, with video games, I tend to get to a point where I'm almost done and then I say, eh, I basically finished it. So I stop, <laughs> but <laughs> at some point I will play the final dungeon. It will happen. Well, let you say original version. So, are you playing on your computer? You're playing on uh, an SNES? You dusted. No, I I actually did not have a video game system when I was a child. My parents uh, kept me away from those and put me uh, in places where there were books. It was a very terrible childhood that I had. Um, So, yeah, I've played on the computer now by a means that uh, you know are, are totally legal. Okay, so I, I ask because I think it'll be interesting as we go here to talk about the different ways that we interact with video games and in, in, in the same way that it's, you know, maybe it's a subtly different experience to read a book on an e-reader or on an original folio that you have or what have you. So, so how about you, John? How, how are you, how are you playing the game? 
Uh, I'm also playing through an emulator, uh, but I'm I'm playing on my tablet, my Android uh, Nexus 7 tablet, which would have been delightful to the John Parrish who first played this game about uh, 20 years ago, you know, having to tromp down to the basement, power up the SNES, and, you know, make sure, you know, either my parents weren't home or that they were home, but that they didn't keep too close track of how long I spent in the basement playing Nintendo, because then be like, oh, you've been down there for like six hours, come back up. Come back upstairs and be like, oh god, mom. So now I can play it on this tiny, like, portable tablet whenever I want using a touchscreen. It's pretty cool. The, the downside is that I'm losing a, I'm losing some of the, I guess, immersion of the game. And we can talk a little more about this in the sort of prologue, nom 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 nom. Nom, nom. Losing some of the immersion in that I typically don't play with the sound on because I'll usually play it, you know, while commuting to or from work on the on public transportation, not uh, not doing it uh, while driving. Uh, so I usually play it on the subway, which you know, which would make it rude and uh, intrusive to play that with the sound cranked up, even if it is a pretty cool soundtrack. Yeah. C- complete aside, if you play mobile games on public transportation with the sound up. You are a monster. This is a nation of laws, and the people next to you on the airplane do not need to hear Candy Crush. Yeah, but no. Uh, <laughs> I, say, that. I say that not out of bitterness towards the person next to me on a certain flight that will remain unnamed. <laughs> but but I don't know. When it comes to Final Fantasy VI, I think that you should crank that up because probably my favorite uh, score of any video game of all time. So if you're going to play anything in public transportation to annoy people, make at this yeah it's definitely a contender up there for uh game soundtracks of the time all time but by the way Shana, a- that, that'd be a great plug to put on the game box if you're gonna play any game <laughs> to annoy people in public transportation make it this game <laughs> ign.com <laughs> and how about you justin how are you uh getting through the game for the the book club here all right so let me describe to you this rube goldberg machine of uh <laughs> Of, of game that I that I rigged up. So I'm playing it on a PlayStation Portable that I had from many years ago, uh, also through an emulator. But I'm the version of the game that I am playing does not actually exist anywhere ever, because I am playing the Game Boy Advance re-release of this game. But uh, when it was when it was ported from the Super Nintendo to the Game Boy Advance, they had to make some compromises because of the hardware. So the color got all washed out and the soundtrack that we were just discussing was uh, mercilessly butchered to a very, very tinny version of what it is. The voices in the opera scene was, were cut out. Uh, it was, it was a bad deal. I, I restored all of the color and music from the original to the game dance version and I'm playing that. Oh my God. <laughs> now I feel, yeah, you are better than me at least on this. I should just bow out of this podcast now. You are the champion, friend. Yeah, I, I went and looked what the best version of this to play was because I knew that there were a whole bunch of them, and that was the answer that I got. Wow, so that is like the craft beer of Final Fantasy VI versions because <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, I, I tweaked it and I did some stuff myself, and you know. I, I only play the artisanal version of Final Fantasy VI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, yeah, no, I'm just a huge video game hipster, so clearly. 
No, that's that's great though, and that that actually should launch, I guess, the, the next little bit of this brush clearing is that there are lots of different versions of this game out there. It's well, one of the reasons we chose the game and, and chose this time to record is that, uh, John, you got it just right. This game came out almost exactly 20 years ago in the United States. Uh, it was released on the SNES on October 20th, 2000, or 1994. And yes. since then, it's been re-released and remastered and ported and emulated. And so there's all these different versions out there. And, and Justin, you asked me at some point when we were kind of planning the podcast, like which version we were all playing. And I think we all just kind of guessed at what the version we were playing. But the, the answer to all the, since we're not trying to version control all the people that have played it out there, is we're, we're just going to let anarchy reign. Uh, we're going to play our different versions and talk about them as best we can. And where there are differences, we'll, we'll talk about what that means. I, I guess the way I see it is that it's not really that different from maybe working off a different translation of a novel or... Um, you know, a different, maybe even a, the same novel, but you, different people read it in different languages are going to get slightly different experiences. So I think that's, that's what we're going for. Do you, do you guys have any thoughts about, about that issue? That sounds about right to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd, I'd say even if you were playing the Japanese version, you're not, uh, like if you're lucky enough to be able to speak Japanese, you wouldn't be getting the full, uh, experience of everything because of certain choices that were made, which I can get into later. Yeah, I understand they made it funnier for us, and I get—I think I read somewhere that uh, the Japanese uh, people in general at the time who were playing it really did not like Kefka at all, whereas I think Kefka is hilarious and awesome. So that would be an interesting thing to explore on yeah. the podcast. Well, ironically, uh, the developers liked the American Kefka better, so in future f- games that featured Kefka, uh, they used his American personality instead of his Japanese one, even in nice. Japanese games. <laughs> awesome. So, nice little, uh, nice little bit Kefka, of... Our Kefka, yeah. Our Kefka a little bit of retconning Kefka. there, yeah. Yeah. Yay, retcon. And I guess I should say now, uh, you know, as the podcast goes forward, as the book club goes forward, if, if you're listening and, you know, the translation that you're playing or the version you're playing is different and something we talk about you know go ahead and let us know sound off in the forums tweet at us you know send angry emails to pete fenzel uh (laughs) whatever you need to do but we'd love to hear about that because we think it it'll really enhance the discussion to hear about how different people have experienced this same piece of art in different ways uh which i guess launches into my next question which there is an answer to is are video games art Oh boy, Roger Ebert is coming back from the grave. Um, I, I mean, I would say, sure, why not? The question I have is, um, how are we to judge it? Because I think anything that wants to be art might as well call art. Okay, fine. But, um, are we going to call it good art or bad art? And if so, uh, what is going to be the criteria that we use? Um, so I guess the question that we're going to uh, have to answer, and this actually has something to do with uh, the discussion that happened when Roger Ebert said that games were an art, is um, are games to be judged as games? Are they supposed to be toys? Are they supposed to be something you win or lose or something that you just play around with? Or I would say that Final Fantasy VI might be one of the first games, I guess Final Fantasy IV as well, um, that was trying, aspiring towards cinema. 
Um, and there was a period in the 90s, I guess, where uh, the games uh, were really trying to be cinematic in every sense of the world, word with the big uh, stories. Um, and that's changed recently, I would say. So, uh, yeah, I'd say video games are art, but what kind of art are they and how do we judge them? I think it's yeah, hard to yeah. – oh, you can go. No, no, go, go ahead. Go ahead. All right, I was going to say, I think it's hard in a lot of ways to apply the framework from other mediums like cinema to games because they are, they have this unique participatory aspect to them that uh, sort of makes it – it brings up all sorts of questions of, of, you know, authorship and sort of intent and how – how in where where the interpretations come from the sort of questions that literature and film and uh, sort of other artistic mediums have been dealing with but because there are multiple contributors to the work not just in the way a movie has a million people working on it but in that the experience of playing a game is an active experience they're they're sort of muddied a bit yeah i mean it, uh, i think that I'm sorry, that essentially covers what I was probably going to cover, so, uh, not much to, not much to catch up at this point. But yeah, I, I think insofar as there are aesthetic elements that can be evaluated, uh, above and beyond your requirement to participate in them, then yeah, there's, there's clearly art or artistic elements, and, uh, and yeah, it, it counts. So, take that, Ebert. <laughs> right, and, and to be fair to, to to Mr. Ebert, he did clarify his position later because uh, for those who, who didn't read the original uh, uh, post about this podcast, uh, Roger Ebert, famous film critic, uh, created a minor internet, uh, I guess we'd call it a kerfuffle, uh, <laughs> about uh, saying essentially that he didn't think video games, not, not only the video games were art, but the video games never could be art, that there wasn't something inherent in the medium that prevented it from ever reaching the level of art and he, he he got a lot of pushback against this and he later clarified his position kind of softening a little bit uh, but but kind of in a backhanded way saying well okay video games can be art kind of making the same point that Shana did saying anything can be art but he just said they can never be high art <laughs> uh, which i'm not sure it's certain is, is really uh, what people were, were going for and obviously this is overthinking it where i think uh it's fair to say one of the the founding thesis of the website is that there's no so, there's no difference between high art and low art. It's all it's all worth talking about. It's all worthy of scrutiny. That there, there's no art necessarily that that has scrutiny. It doesn't deserve, or, or at the very least, that it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, so, yeah, I think the Justin, what you said about authorship is interesting because I guess the one thing that sticks out to me about video games is we don't have while there certainly is authorship, I don't think video games have the same tradition of a person. You know, even for a, mo- a film which has thousands and thousands of people, there's almost always one, maybe two, you know, the director and the executive producer in some cases, who we kind of credit with having a, a vision and all the decisions flow through that person. So, that wasn't always the case, though. That really started no. in the 70s. So it doesn't necessarily have to be true in the film world. Right. No, I, I don't think it's necessarily true at all. I just think it's an interesting difference that in a, you know, even in a movie like uh, The Avengers, which, you know, certainly took 
probably more people working on it than most video games. We think of that, I think, first and foremost as being a Joss Whedon movie. That that's that's what he and even though, you know, the Marvel people control that universe with an iron fist, there's still kind of this idea of authorship behind it. Whereas I think in the video game world, uh, maybe Justin, you know more about the industry, but is there that sense that there are that behind a video game there's a single voice, or is that kind of abstracted to the studio level that that you more talk about maybe what valve does or what sony does or whoever makes the games so there there are i guess two directions you can go with this um there's there's actually been a, a supreme court actually that was supreme it was like a third third circuit appeals court decision on game authorship back in the 80s that we can talk about if you're interested but Sort of as as is perceived right now, there are game auteurs certainly. Like Shigeru Miyamoto is a name that people know, and they they know his games. That he is the guy behind Mario and The Legend of Zelda. Um, there are other people. Uh, Hideo Kojima, people know he makes Metal Gear Solid, but these people are generally people that have been around for a really long time. Uh, you know, twenty plus years in the industry, and. A large number, I don't know if it's a majority, but it's certainly a large number are Japanese because that's where games came from for a very long time. And when you look at American games, you know, you look at Madden, you look at Call of Duty, nobody knows who's behind those. And part of the reason is because it changes all the time. There isn't sort of the auteur behind the game. So that's 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 how I perceive it anyway. That's that's how I think what the state is right now, and that's sort of shifting uh, with more independent game developers sort of gaining fame, gaining sort of a name for themselves. Uh, Edmund McMillan, who made uh, The Binding of Isaac and Super Meat Boy, is definitely sort of one of those people that, that whose name is starting to become a thing that people will buy based on his name, not based on the game series. Well, so that's interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I guess, like, do we know who, who did Final Fantasy VI? Who, who, is there an auteur behind Final Fantasy VI that, that we're aware of? If we're not, I think that tells us something about, about the game. And if there is, it'd be interesting to know that. But I, well, I don't know off the top of my head if that's According, happens. according to Wikipedia, which I loaded up so I could speak intelligently on this, <laughs> on this subject, as I try to do before most of our podcasts, uh, Final Fantasy VI, and I'm quoting Wikipedia here, was the first game in the series to be directed by someone other than producer and series creator Hironobu Sakaguchi. The role was filled instead by Yoshinori Kitase and Hiroki Ito. Yeah, so Sakaguchi's name is the one that's generally associated with Final Fantasy. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. here's a, an anecdote is that, uh, I downloaded a game on my phone today solely based upon the fact that it was a game that Sakaguchi made and I was interested in seeing where he was going to take his sort of design aesthetic in a mobile space. So there you go, I guess. Huh. It's funny though, when I think of Final Fantasy VI, the people I think of are, um, the composer, um, that it was that Nobuo Uematsu, right? Yes. And, yeah. um, the character designer who was, uh, Mano something or other. Um, but yeah, it, it's funny that you have these people who are involved in it, but they weren't the people who, you know, uh, it, the idea for the game did not come from spring from their minds. They were uh, tangential to it. So it, it, that's an interesting point, I think. Well, I'm, it, it's there can be a I don't know there can be a collaborative or ensemble effort uh, in 
I'm sorry, I'm just pulling something up so I can, uh, so I can reference it. An ensemble effort, even in, in works of art like this. And I think Roger Ebert, if we were to have this conversation with him, would acknowledge that part of what makes, for instance, the Coen Brothers movies so distinct is the recurring role that Roger Deakins has as their cinematographer. Uh, he has a, he's a very, he's a very distinct, uh, master of, of sort of framing the lens. Uh, and his, his shots tend to stand out very, uh, very, Obviously, such that uh, when, he, when he was recruited for uh, Skyfall, the latest Bond movie, it was critically renowned for some of the gorgeous shots that it, uh, that resulted because you know it was just a gorgeously shot and presented film. It's very very nicely done. So even then, you have a sense of multiple people at work on the same artistic product. And I think while in the well, in the eyes of, I guess, the popular audience, it's associated with one person or another. Like the Avengers is a Marvel movie, or it's a Whedon movie, or Skyfall is a Bond movie. Really, they're, you know, they're made by different directors, they have different composers, different cinematographers, different screenwriters, etc. And the more critical audience, which I guess is us and the people that Overthinking It caters to, can dig into and distinguish between these things. And if there are distinct and meaningful differences between the output of various creators. Like, the first generation of Atari games, no one's... I don't think anyone except the real deep scholars, and obviously we have a scholar on our podcast, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think anyone but the real deep scholars is really getting into, like, oh, the the artistic rendering of Cops and Robbers was so much different from the artistic rendering of, uh, I don't know, Pitfall, which it which it was, but, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, those discussions are definitely being had somewhere, but uh, <laughs> I'm not having them right fair now. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I do think it's, it's, there is a really notable exception to sort of your ensemble in games rule, I think, but I can only think of one, so maybe that, like, it's the exception that proves the rule. That's, uh, actually the same people a year later with Chrono Trigger, um, which okay. was, uh, was made by what was internally known it's uh, Squaresoft at the time as the Dream Team, and that sort of got out and is sort of within the, I guess, the game fan vernacular for people who really like Chrono Trigger, because they got just who at the time they felt were the best at everything, the best at art, the best at music, the best director, the best, uh, I guess, the best designers. So uh, Sakaguchi was the designer on that game and the supervisor, and they had... Uh, uh, was it Akira Toriyama, who is, I guess, best known for Dragon Ball Z uh, as the artist. And they had uh, Masato, Kato. I'm just I mean, I don't know how much these names mean to you. Um, write the script. And the sort of Nobu Ematsu, who, of course, is the aforementioned Final Fantasy musician, came in and did the music. So it was it was an ensemble effort. And it was and it is sort of known as that. And. I think Chrono Trigger remains today beloved and people are continually clamoring for a new one because that team never again was sort of able to get together and do another game in the way that they did Chrono Trigger. And you, you, you discussing the different roles those people play kind of brings me to the next point I want to talk about, which is we can kind of divide the you know video game up into into parts as we've already been doing. Obviously, it has a score, it has certain sound effects, it has a script, it has graphics, it has plot. But so far, at least all of those things are not unique to the video game medium. To some extent, they're 
they exist in a movie as well. You could have a Final Fantasy VI movie that depicts more or less everything we just talked about. Of course, the difference is the video game has the interactive element. There's this decision, a bunch of decisions made by the authors about how the player is going to interact with this world. And so what, how does that affect the artistic experience? How does that mediate the uh, author's intent? I don't think we're going to come to one answer now, but I think it's a, a theme we're going to want to come back to again and again. So is there kind of any preliminary thoughts that you guys have about that? Well, when we started um, talking about this um, on our email back and forth, I jumped in and I said that I was really excited to use the term ludonarrative. But you know what? <laughs> we have an expert on the subject here. So I'm going to say, don't worry, guys. I'm not going to use the word. Someone who knows what they're talking about is going to use the word ludonarrative. So there you go. Throwing it out there. Vocabulary. So I guess as a place to start, actually, I that that court case that i mentioned is is a really good place um the the details were that uh this game came out called defender maybe you played it i think it was on the atari uh and uh it it did really well it was made by williams electronics and uh another company arctic international began producing a knockoff of it called defense command that was basically identical it used the same images and i think it was some of the same code it was it was very blatantly uh a violation of, of copyright. And so they, they took them to court and the defendant argued, uh, that sort of the, this is, this is quoting, uh, that the player's participation withdraws the game's audiovisual work from copyright eligibility because there's no set or fixed performance and the player becomes a co-author of what appears on the screen. Now, the court rejected this argument because they, they said that the player's control is not total and only limited to certain points of influence, but I guess this is where the Ludo narrative comes in, that the player has some authorial power over the direction that the game goes in a way that they would not if it were just a movie. And yet um, what they, you know, can do is prescribed by the, the authors, you know, so they are very much in this game, Final Fantasy, all the Final Fantasies really uh, sort of railroaded and into doing certain things. Uh, you know, they can only, you know, grind through. It is an RPG, so they can only, uh, you know, level up in certain fashions. Uh, so, yeah, there's an interesting mix here between uh, the sort of independence of the uh the player versus uh other creators right so one thing to one thing to comment on though and and ben i don't know if this is what you were uh hinting at when you first brought this up is that final fantasy 6 more so than a lot of other games at the time and in a way that's sort of become more prevalent in games in the genre uh, especially in the second half uh, makes a lot of its gameplay almost entirely player-driven in that there's a good chunk of the second half of the game that you can miss out on without even really knowing it's there, uh, or if you know it's there but choose not to engage with it, uh, you know, can, can simply pass it by and, and proceed directly to the ending, which, uh, which is a very, is a very bold choice for gameplay and definitely makes this an, an interesting piece of art, uh, to an extent that you don't see in a lot of games today, unless they decide to go explicitly open world, but even games that preserve a lot of choice mostly mostly make it the illusion of choice rather than uh, 
rather than actual legit choice that makes an impact on the way the game plays out. You know what else is interesting about this game now that you say that, John, um, is that you have a choice in the second half of the game um, uh, as to what character you are going to play at um, as, and you can switch it around, whereas a lot of uh, video games uh, that were being played at the time, you had just one character, one avatar who was basically you. Um, and then this game, you have like a bunch of different use and, uh, your perspective changes, uh, throughout the first half of the game. Uh, and I think that, uh, really changes how you experience it. It's less of, you feel like less of a first person narrative and more of a third person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is something that we are really gonna wanna discuss as we play through. Yeah. One of the, I know one of the design goals for this game when it was in development was, uh, every character is the hero. Mm. So that was that was their uh I guess phrase that they started with. Right. And that's that's kind of an interesting jumping off point because it's difficult to imagine a movie or book equivalent to that where you have every, even if you had a book that tried to tell the story from multiple perspectives and you know multiple characters are the hero. I mean I guess uh, Game of Thrones is probably the best example of this because you have multiple points of view character on characters on multiple sides of the conflict each one is still kind of the hero at the time where we're paying attention to them whereas this gives you the opportunity of playing the same story three different times and having three different heroes be the story be three different people be the hero each time you tell the story which is an interesting twist on on the way it goes Um, and i guess i'll just just close this little section by saying that uh that the Supreme Court has has also agreed uh, with this in a, a very recent case, uh, saying, quote, like the protected books, plays, and movies that preceded them, video games communicate ideas and even social messages through many familiar literary devices and through features distinctive to the medium. That suffices to confer First Amendment protection. So there you go. The high court weighing in on against Roger Ebert. And they're never wrong. <laughs> Yay! So yeah, only when they invoke infallibility, though. Right. <laughs> yes, uh, pap- papal, robal, judicial, infallible. I don't know what you call them. Related to this, and I guess this this is something that's come up to come up with me as I'm playing through the game. So this is, I think it's going to be my second full playthrough of the game. But I I beat it once when I first owned it on the console, and I had several aborted playthroughs in the years succeeding. This is going to be my second time playing it all the way through to the end, and I'm super psyched about it. But one thing I've found is that without, you know, the the aid of a copy of Nintendo Power by my side at all times, it's a pretty tricky game to play. Like, there's a lot of stuff I can miss out on that, as a critic and commentator, I want to be able to speak to. Uh, I'll give I'll give an example without going too deep into into the text because I know we don't want to lose people too early on. But uh, there's an optional character you can acquire about just before the midway point of the game, but you have to you have to go back to specific places in times that you're not prompted to to pick this character up. And I so I went on the internet and searched around for a couple of you know like GameFacts.com. Uh, details and how do I get this character? It's like, oh, okay, I missed this window, but there's another window coming up later. But it occurred to me, am I experiencing this piece of art in the way that it's meant to by deliberately searching for third-party sources to optimize my playthrough? Or would a more, quote-unquote, purist playthrough be to just 
take it, take the piece of art as it presents itself to me and fumble through it on my own. Well, I, I don't know. I would have to look on the computer, but it was um, this one of the video games in the time of you can call the 1-800-1900 number to get a hint? Because I remember oh, of course. In the 90s. Oh, yeah, of course it was. was. The, well, the so in eight- that case, I think it was definitely supposed to be part of it. It's sort of like when people <laughs> were watching Lost and they were asking, oh, all this stuff on the Internet or these little fan videos, not fan videos, um, you know, uh, little whatever you call those, those little videos, mini-sodes um, that are online. Are we really supposed to watch those to understand what's happening on the TV show? And the creators are like, yes, that is part of the narrative and you guys are supposed to come here and get it. So perhaps we can say that the, the hint help desk is part of the narrative or was back in the day. <laughs> I mean, even even simpler than that, uh, This I think this is a game that came with a map of the world in the box. Uh, yes, it did. You I bought remember. it new, and as somebody who do, did not have that, I have spent a lot of time just wandering aimlessly around the world map trying to find the city that I was directed to because I, I don't know where that city is. And <laughs> I should have a map of the world where I could just look on the map and say, oh, it's there and walk there. But uh, that is uh, that is not a luxury afforded to me. Right. And this this is kind of an interesting difference between a game and, you know, a more conventional narrative is like the, in real life. Sure. People get lost. They don't know what city they're going to. But you can just cut all that out if you want to make an interesting story. Like, we don't see Gandalf, like, stopping to ask for directions. I mean, presumably because he knows the way. But even if he doesn't, they're just going to skip that part of the movie where they the, the characters are lost. They can just jump right over it. Uh, so so yeah. it's just kind of interesting to have that as part of the narrative. You you have to actually get from A to B, even if you don't know how, how that goes. Well, so they, you will go to Kefka's Tower, but you do not know the way, Gandalf. Yeah. <laughs> well, they they skip the boring stuff in this narrative too. Like we never see the characters have to go to the bathroom or scrounge up food or anything. The getting from point A to point B is is quote unquote interesting in this narrative because that's where you introduce the level grinding and the encounters with random monsters and the ability to slowly advance in power, fulfilling the sort of weird JRPG interpretation of of the monomyth heroic journey. Right, which of course could be covered in montage in a movie. True. <laughs> Just by slaying <laughs> monsters. But we're, we're reaching, uh, you know, about 30 minutes here, so let me, let me transition to the, to the plot. As I said, we don't want to get too deep into it, but everybody here has, has played at least some of the game, all the way through the game. What are, what are some themes that are, that are going to be on the agenda for the next six weeks that we, we're, we should be looking out for? Um, well, I was talking before about how the a player sort of perceives themselves uh, within the game. And I think this game is a lot about self. Uh, you have uh, Tara saying, who am I? Very frequently. Um, so that's definitely something. And I think this game also has to do a lot um, with the relationship between past and present, the uh, history repeating itself. So maybe the, a question that we have to ask is, um, the characters themselves, do they, uh, I don't know, conceive themselves as uh, people living in a present time or are they affected or created by their past or possibly um, can they imagine themselves as people who have a goal uh, in the future? And I can't really talk about this very much because a lot of the things I'm thinking of are from the second half of the game. But yeah, I'd like to 
talk about self and time in their relationship. Okay, self and time. I'll be asking you about both as uh, as we go ahead here. Uh, how, how about you, John? Uh, uh, don't hold me don't hold me to this as my sole and only answer because I'm still muddling through the game and I may have additional things to add. But the one thing that's striking me on this playthrough is the sort of human element of war. Uh, in that, you know, the, I mean, the idea of a grand war between good and evil is fairly cliched in video games. But this game, perhaps more so than a lot of games prior, and I think it's become more common sense, really digs into the human costs of war. Like, how do people behave when they're prosecuting a war on either the dominant or the, uh, or the revolutionary side uh what are the what are the lingering effects of war what are the you know what are the historical effects of war uh how do people rebuild after how do people on both sides including the notionally good and notionally bad uh deal with it etc okay i i think we can uh i think there'll be plenty to dig into there uh justin how about you so uh, I guess I was thinking about something similar to what Shana was talking about. It was not on the character level, but sort of on the world level with sort of old world versus new world, the encroachment of technology. But I think that may be cutting a little too close. So maybe instead I'll, uh, I'll go with uh, sort of religion and nihilism and sort of the tension between where does meaning come from. And uh, I think sort of Kafka is the character that, is is most involved with this sort of subject, uh, maybe literally uh, by the end. But I don't I don't want to ruin anything. So I think that uh, sort of looking at where what what is the meaning of life? Where does that meaning? Where from does that meaning derive? Uh, is is something that potentially would be interesting to examine in this context? I mean, what, what about is, you, Ben? Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just say, what is the good? Is is a pretty pretty old topic in literature. So I, I, I mm-hmm. fully anticipate that a a, a game like this is going to give us plenty to chew on. And uh, well, I, I, I think Shane, you're about to yeah. So I think my yeah, I was about to throw it to you, Ben. I didn't want you to just moderate. Right. Well, so moderate I yourself. so full disclosure, I may be moderating a lot because I, I may or may not be able to keep up with the pace of play. So what we'll see as as we move ahead, what my what my schedule allows. But uh, certainly, as I've seen so far, I think this is sort of related to uh, what what Justin has has said. But I'll. I think the relationship between technology and magic, I mean, right, right, right off the bat, you have this idea of magitech and that by merging the two, it, it turns into this kind of ultra technology it is, I think, really interesting. There's this there's always this notion that technology is sort of a magic in its own. Uh, so I, I think I want to explore kind of how the characters interact with this idea that magic is coming back into the world or and how that's going to affect kind of geopolitics. Because at the same time, it also has to something to say about just technology generally and how that affects uh, the way we do things. I mean, John, you're talking about the human element of war. Well, that, you know, no- nothing has been more changed or maybe, you know, or maybe not nothing has been more changed, but certainly warfare has been massively changed by technology and that has had huge implications for our society. And it, it looks like that's going to have the same to say for the, uh, the society in Final Fantasy VI. So I'm I'm excited to see how that's going to play out. So how like advanced? Oh, say how how advanced does the uh, tech in Magitech have to get before it's completely indistinguishable and is just magic? 
Right. Or just tech. You know, at what point does the magic become known enough in order to be technology? Because if you, if you really started figuring out all the rules of how magic works, at a certain point, it would just be technology. It would just be how the world works and you could predict it and make, you know, new technology based on that magic. And at that point, it's no longer really magic. So uh, I think we'll have a lot to chew on here. Uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna end it. I'm very excited to uh, to be doing the book club. Uh, I owe a special uh, hat tip to uh, my friend Roland uh, at law school who posted something about six months ago saying he really needed a, a book club for video games, and that was the uh, the genesis of, of this idea. So uh, we're Roland. Thanks for that. And uh, oh yeah, uh, Justin just reminded me that uh, we have one. Twitter question. We, we sent out a call on Twitter asking what people thought about the game, and, and we got a recommendation for a book uh, about reverse design of a variety of series, uh, including Final Fantasy VI. We, none of us have had a chance to read it, uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll get some more, be able to delve into that issue of kind of reverse engineering that book, and that's what we're going to be trying to do here, figuring out how, uh, how it is. So thank you to uh, B. Wright, that's at I-N-O Wright, uh, on Twitter. So, so thanks for that. And, uh, we're, we're excited to get started. We're going to have stuff in the forums every week. We're going to be on Twitter and Facebook and we're, we're going to have a great time with our, uh, quote unquote book club. So, so thanks guys. I have a question. Where can, uh, people who want to play along find, uh, the chapters that we have, uh, set Uh, out? That is a, that is an excellent question. We, we've obviously the, the game doesn't really have chapters in the same sense as a book, but we've, uh, we, by which I mean Shana has, uh, has divvied it up for us. Um, and so we'll post that in the, on the overthinking it page, uh, next to this podcast. And it's also in the original announcement for this, uh, the book club has the, has the schedule. Uh, so we'll post that every, every time we post the new podcast, we'll post the schedule with, with where we're going and what's next. Um, and so hopefully everyone will be able to, uh, play along with us. Uh, so unless anybody else has anything to say, uh, the only thing left to do is, uh, to come visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably probably doesn't deserve. 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 Can I say son of a submariner, or is it too soon? Is that how you pronounce that? I thought it was submariner. Maybe it is. I don't know. Oh, I hadn't thought of it any other way. This This is actually a point of controversy among submariners that I know. So, (laughs) in my my translation, it was actually son of a sandworm, and I was disappointed because I was looking forward to that line. That just seems wrong.